Yeah, so uh, hopefully I'll get to talk to some of you more afterwards, but for now, uh, I was promised that I only get a little bit of time to walk you through First John, so I want to take as much of that as I can. So if you want to open up, if you have a copy of God's Word or you want to power it up on your phone or look on with a friend, um, we're going to be in the book of First John, which is way towards the back of your New Testament. And because we only have eight weeks together to get through First John, we'll be taking that uh, in relatively big sections. So for this week, uh, we will be going all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. And what I'd like to do is read that together at the beginning, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 6. And then we'll just break down what are the main themes, uh, both in the introduction and then also throughout the book. And we'll talk a little bit in our discussion time afterwards about um, how you might get the most out of reading First John for yourself, maybe even just good principles for reading the Bible on your own. So we're going to try to uh, try to facilitate a lot of things together this summer. But... Uh, without further ado, I'm going to start reading in chapter 1 of verse 1, and I'll be reading out of the ESV translation, so if you see any differences uh, between mine and yours, that's what that is. So, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you all the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that first uh, section of John's letter uh, represents kind of a framing for the entirety of the letter. And really we're going to try to do two things in our discussion together tonight. Uh, One, I'm going to try to give you a rough walkthrough of John's argument for the first couple of verses, uh, how he sets up his letter and how he begins to argue for uh, his his purposes. Uh, And then the second thing we're going to try to do is we're going to try to understand how does that matter, uh, you know, something that was written 2,000 years ago, how does that matter for us who live in 2023? How could John possibly have anything to say to us because we know so much more about the world than him? We know more about science, more about agriculture, more about human relations. We have all kinds of 
knowledge that's been accumulated between now and then, how does someone writing in the first century have anything to say to us? So those are the two questions we're going to try to answer. Um, and we're going to try to do that by essentially finding John's thesis. And I think his thesis is this, or his main idea, is that if we truly profess to be Christians, if we truly follow after Christ, what that means is we will live a holy life. That does not mean we will live a perfectly holy life because Christians struggle with sin, as we're going to see he talks about. But the point is that if we, if we profess to follow after Christ, it means that we live a different kind of life than we would if we never followed Christ. And if we profess to follow Christ and it doesn't change actually how we live, that means there's something either wrong with our profession or wrong with our practice of the Christian faith. Okay? So that's the m main outline of his argument. Um, but his argument starts with first understanding the foundation of the Christian faith, which is Jesus Christ manifest in the flesh. If we truly know who he is and what he did, it changes how we live. And you see that in the introduction to uh, his letter here. In the first four verses, he outlines his introduction. It's very clear, very simple, and he's going to kind of echo these points over and over again. And you, you hear his repeated vocabulary. It's almost like he's, he's working from a limited English dictionary, and he just kind of repeats the same words over and over again. He says this, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. Now what he's, he's doing here is he's, he's not just reproducing words for the sake of echoing them. He's giving us what we would call eyewitness testimony. Now, if you have ever wondered about, let's say, the validity of the resurrection, and is it really important for Christians to believe? Can't Christians just live good moral lives and believe in the idea of Jesus or something like that? John seems convinced, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ's bodily resurrection, his bodily incarnation, which means him coming to earth and taking on human form, and then also his resurrection in body after he was crucified, is kind of the, the bread and butter of the Christian faith. It's the foundation. If you don't have that, you actually don't have anything at all. And actually, John's opponents, the people who he writes against in 1 John, are people who would deny that Christ ever had a body. And that actually leads to all kinds of practice, different kinds of theology that, that comes out. So for instance, John wants us to know that the, it wasn't just that Jesus was some kind of ghost in the first century, or that he was a rumor, or that he was a myth, or that he was a real person, and someone later dolled up his story to be something significant. He's saying, the thing that was from the beginning, which is Christ, we have heard, but not only have we heard, we saw him, right? But we didn't just see him like a vision. We saw him with our eyes, not in our spirits or anything like that. Uh, we've looked upon him, and, and more than that, we touched him with our hands, right? You can think about Thomas when he sees the resur resurrected Christ. He says, you can see my scars on my hands and on my side. You can go ahead and touch them, right? The point is, he's not a ghost. He's not a, he's not a figment of imagination. He's not some kind of collective hallucination from the first century disciples. And that's really important because, well, that's the difference between whether you care about this world and this body or not. If Jesus came to redeem us, not just as spiritual beings, but also as embodied creatures, then that matters for how we treat one another in this life. And it also matters whether we care for our bodies in this life. The Gnostics, which is a fancy term for the people who, uh, they're false teachers in the early church, they believe in all kinds of things, but kind of the core belief of the Gnostics is that, well, your body doesn't matter at all. Christ came as a spirit being, not as, a, not as an embodied creature. And he came not to save your body. Your body's perishing. Your body's wicked. In fact, this whole world is wicked. What Christ came to do is show us that 
We need to transcend into eternal life, which means to become spirits, to shed our bodies and to really be uh, liberated spirits from this, let's say, fleshly world. And that led to all kinds of weird practices. Like the Gnostics would say, so you can do whatever you want with your body because your body's not going into the afterlife with you. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want with it. Treat, uh, treat other people however you want to treat them. It doesn't matter because these bodies don't matter. It's all perishing. It's, it's a little bit like if I told you we're going to play a game of Monopoly and we're, we're going to have a bunch of fake money that we're going to hand out and we're going to play this game. And eventually towards the end of the game, what ends up happening is people, no matter how much money or how little money they have, they make decisions not based on how they would make decisions in real life with that much money, but knowing that when the board game is packed up and we all walk away from this in, in an hour, depending how long you play Monopoly for, uh, none of what we did here actually changes how I live my life tomorrow. So you spend money in different ways, you're going to make all kinds of strange and possibly random decisions because it's all, it's all kind of meaningless, right? It doesn't act, you don't actually carry that into uh, the next day. You don't roll it over. And so it is with the Gnostics. They believe that their bodies don't matter, so they treat them however they want, which means they're going to sleep with whoever they want. They're going to tell other young believers that they can do whatever they want with their bodies. They can drink, they can party, they can do all kinds of things. It doesn't matter. And John writes and he says, actually Christ came in an embodied form to redeem us both body and soul. So it actually matters incredibly what we do with our bodies. And so John's going to say, if we truly profess Christ, it means we're going to live in our physical bodies in a different kind of way than we otherwise would. And that's what he goes on to in the next session, uh, next section, verses 5 to 10. He says, this message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you is this, that God is light and there's no darkness in him whatsoever. And then he's going to give a series of tests. We might call them tests of faith. Uh, these are not things that we can say, if we've done it one time, that means we're Christians. And if we have failed at it one time, it means we're not Christians. What it means is, what is your regular pattern of life? Do you walk as a Christian or do you not walk as a Christian in your daily pattern? He gives us a series of hypotheticals. And what he does is he says, suppose this, what do we think about that? And then he gives another hypothetical. Suppose this, what do we think about that? He's kind of giving you the situation and he's going to ask you as an audience member, as a reader, to evaluate that consideration. So imagine you're talking to a friend or uh, someone you're discipling or someone who's discipling you and they ask you this question. Suppose we say that we have fellowship with him, meaning we have fellowship with Christ, and we walk in darkness. Uh, we go on sinning. Our life isn't any different. What would you conclude about a person who says that? I have fellowship with Christ, but my life is, is still in darkness. I don't live as a Christian. That person, we, if, if we are the ones saying that, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We do not practice what Christ taught. But suppose we walk in the light as he is in the light, meaning we walk in holiness as Christ is holy. We have fellowship with not Christ. Notice what he says in the text. First and foremost, we have fellowship with one another because as Christians, we are bought into a believing family. We have fellowship first and foremost with one another because we have fellowship with Christ because his blood, Jesus, his son, has cleansed us from every sin. Now another hypothetical. Suppose we say we do not have sin, right? His blood cleanses us from sin. What if someone says, I don't need his blood to cleanse me from sin because I don't have any sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? You see the hypothetical, the evaluation. And then the last one, suppose we confess our sins, what then? If we confess the sins that we do have, what is the evaluation? Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. See, Jesus is not just a spirit who came to show us how to live life. He came to deal with the human sin problem 
which leads us to fellowship with one another and right relationship with God. All of these things are accomplished in Christ's life. And then he says, but if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is evidently not in us. Meaning that whatever we profess, whether we follow Christ or not, if we say we have no sin or we don't struggle with sin, we don't confess sin, it means we don't actually believe or live as though we are actually Christians. And that uh, takes us to a turning point in his, his letter. And now you see kind of his, his heart for the people he writes to. He, he writes to them as intimate members of his family. He says it this way, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? His goal, his purpose, even as you're reading this, is so that if you follow his argument and you understand it, you'll walk away tonight not struggling with sin in the way that you used to. Because Christ Jesus makes us a new creation in him because he has cleansed us from sin. Meaning sin doesn't have a hold over us anymore. It doesn't have power anymore, right? The, the sting of sin is death, and death has been dealt with on the cross. That's the argument of the Christian gospel. So John says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, period. But what if you do sin? What if you're a Christian and you go home and tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, you do something sinful? You hate someone in your heart, you curse your family member, maybe you uh, lie to someone, uh, your boss at work for your, uh, one of your jobs that you just started this summer. What then? If you, if you sin, what, what does that mean? Does that mean you are a false professor of the Christian faith? Well, no. If anyone does sin, meaning you commit a sinful act, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Because actually our salvation isn't dependent on whether we perfectly obey Christ. It doesn't matter because Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and he is the one who advocates on our behalf, meaning uh, God has a, a real accusation against us. When we sin, that is really something that is sinful against the holy God. It's not like something we can, God can just sweep under the rug. But Jesus is our advocate. So he stands in our place, interceding between us and the Father to say, actually, that sin has been dealt with on the cross. I paid for it. This sin has no hold on this person anymore. So if you sin, you can go and confess your sins because well, it's not just you confessing your sins. It's actually Jesus then stepping in and saying, and that sin is not hopeful to be dealt with. It actually has definitively been dealt with in his death on the cross. Now, here's the, the kicker. This does not mean that the Father wants to punish you for sin and that Jesus is, let's say, standing against the Father trying to save you from the Father's wrath. The idea is that God actually, the Father, actually wants Jesus to be our intercessor. And Jesus actually also demands justice. So the Father and the Son are, are working it out so that Jesus is the one who stands in our place, but not because the Father doesn't want him to be there, actually because the Father said, I love the world so much that I send my Son into the world to save the world. So Jesus stands as our advocate because the Father sent him to be our advocate. And Jesus intercedes for us, not because he doesn't like justice, but he loves justice so much that he dealt with sin's payment in his own body so that justice has no payment on Christians anymore. So then here's the idea. This is in verse 2 of chapter 2. He is the, I'm going to say the word in the English translation, it's the propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word. Depending on what translation you have in front of you, you could have a whole number of things that are said there. Uh, this is where people who translate the New Testament get into all kinds of territory because, well, the term is, is a term that has all kinds of significance. You could, you could say he is the one who deals with our sin problem. He is our, some translations would say, expiation. Not that that really helps us get clear, closer to the meaning. Um, those are all big terms. Uh, you could try it this way. He is the wrath bearer for our sins. He's the one who bears the wrath of God 
and, and make sure that it has no sting anymore. Whatever you want to do with that theologically, there's all kinds of debate you can get into with that. But the idea is that Jesus Christ actually deals with the problem of sin on the cross, not by sweeping it under the rug, but by taking away the power of sin. He is that for us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only for our sins, he's also the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now, this does not mean that Christians are universalists. What that means is that everyone will be saved. It doesn't matter what you believe. The idea is, is more like this. If you're in the first century, uh, there's a lot of ethnic strife, ethnic animosity. Now, that's probably not a new idea for you, right? Paul has to deal with tensions between Gentiles and Jews all the time. Here's the idea. Jesus isn't just the sacrifice for the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He's actually the sacrifice for anyone, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. They are all one in Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for everyone. It doesn't matter what your race is, what family you grew up in, what your country you were born in. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice open to all. He's the one who everyone can turn to for salvation. Not just if you're a Jewish male can you be saved, but also if you're a Gentile male, if you're a female, if you're in the Roman slave system, you can all be saved by believing in Christ. That's how expansive his salvation is. And by this, now, so that's what Jesus does for us. And here's how we know that we actually have that applied to our lives. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say if we keep his commandments, that brings us into right relationship with him. It says, if we have come to know him, we keep his commandments. The order of operations is first he saves us, and then we render obedience to him. Not because the obedience earns us favor with God or salvation. Jesus' life already did that. He's the wrath bearer, not us. So we don't want to even try to take that place. But what it does mean is our lives look different now as believers than they did beforehand. You might think about it this way. Imagine you just started a new job, uh, a new vocation. Some of you, I know, are students in college, so you started a summer job maybe. Some of you might be going into the workforce at some point in the future. You start a job, and at every job, you're going to have things that you are allowed to do, things you are not allowed to do, and things that you are required to do. Meaning, uh, you, you can't just go to a new job and never show up to work, right? You'll get fired within the day. You can't just go to a job and, well, never serve a customer. Let's say you worked at a coffee shop, right? You can't just show up to work and then not do any of your job responsibilities. If you are in a position of having a new job, a new identity, a new thing that you're doing, well, there's actually positive requirements demanded of you. You ought to, let's say you're working at a coffee shop, you ought to serve customers. You probably have to clean up. You probably have to take orders. You probably have to be friendly to people. You have a whole lot of things you're supposed to do, not because uh, that earns you any righteousness before your employer, but because now that you're an employee of this uh, establishment, you have certain things that you're expected to do as part of your identity there. Now, the difference between, or where this analogy breaks down, is you could actually legitimately lose your job if you were a bad enough employee. I wouldn't recommend trying that, but you totally could. You could get fired if you don't do your job well enough. If you're a Christian and you sin miserably and fail falling flat on your face, you actually don't get fired because Jesus already dealt with all sins. There's no, there's no weight that sin holds. So that analogy is only partially true uh, we are expected to obey him, but we do that because we love him and we want to obey him, not because he demands obedience from us or else, or else, right? That's not what God's offering to us as Christians. And this is how he closes this argument. He says, whoever is the one who says, I know him, meaning I have relationship with him, right? If you talk to someone on campus, they say, I know Christ or I have relationship with God. But that person doesn't keep his commandments. What do we conclude about that person? You might say this is a really strong language, a harsh judgment to render, but here's what he says. 
that person is a liar. And the truth, meaning the truth of God, is not in him. But whoever does keep his word, whoever is obedient to God's commands, it's in that person that truly the love of God is perfected or brought to completion. We could say, that we could say it this way. If anyone is obedient to God's word, God's love is manifest in their life. They love their brothers. They love their neighbor. They love each other. They treat everyone in the way that God loves the world. In him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him, meaning whoever abides in Christ or walks in him, ought to walk, meaning live their life, in the exact same way that Jesus walked. Now, that does not mean that we actually can do that. That's what we call a gold standard expectation uh, of which we will fall short. Uh, we would say this way, we are called in the New Testament to be image bearers of Christ, to uh, follow after him. As Paul would say, follow after me as I follow after Christ. We are called to be imitators of God. But that does not actually mean that we will achieve that in this lifetime. In fact, you could try that. You're gonna, you're gonna screw that up at some point, whether it be by actually sinning or by not being as perfectly just or righteous or loving as you actually ought to be. Now, the idea of, of the New Testament, though, is that if we are really Christians, what God has done for us actually affects how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we care for one another. That's not really optional for Christians. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't match with my experience of how I've seen Christians act or conduct themselves in the world. Well, that's just proof that Christians still struggle to perfectly obey Christ and be imitators of him. It doesn't actually change, though, what John writes here. So now you can say, okay, well, what does this have to do with us who live thousands of year at, years after John has written? Well, the application, as we're reading it, kind of seems pretty obvious, right? We still struggle to perfectly obey Christ, and we need to be reminded of the fact that God actually does demand obedience from us. It's not just a free ticket ride as Christians. We also know that as Christians, we're going to struggle with sin. So what do we do in that case? Do we try to hide our sin? Do we try to outwork our sinfulness? None of that. We confess our sin to God because, well, he wasn't holding it over us anyway because Jesus has dealt with our sin. And then the last piece, how should we treat other people who maybe aren't Christians or maybe are Christians? How should we treat them as we live our lives? How should we treat classmates, friends, coworkers, family members? How should we treat them? We should treat them with the love that God demands of us because he has shown us how to love one another. This is John's argument, that how Christians profess, what they profess to believe, either in Christ or not, that actually should manifestly change how they live on the ground. And if you're saying, I have no examples of that as a Christian, well, you can start that in your neck of the woods, in your family, in your friend group, in your job. You can actually start that. Because that's the standard that John writes for us in the New Testament. And that's actually not contradictory. Actually, every New Testament writer writes that. We're just reading 1 John right now. Um, so that's the argument. I think that's why it's relevant for us. Uh, in our time of discussion, we'll have a little bit uh, more time to flush out some of these questions that you guys might have. We'll have questions for you to talk through and maybe stimulate your mind a little bit as you think through some of these things. Uh, but before we get into that, let me just close this in a word of prayer, and then we can uh, break off into groups. Our Father, we thank you for this time uh, to gather in your word. Uh, to read it, uh, and Lord, to be taught by it, to be instructed by your spirit. We pray for your grace tonight as we continue in discussion and ultimately uh, continue in fellowship, uh, that your spirit would abide in us, that our joy would be completed in the fellowship we have together. We pray this in your name. Amen.